My subject this morning is uh, entitled The Battle of Armageddon. And before I begin, just a little footnote on this. I don't want to forget. Uh, I'm sure you've probably heard, but uh, just the other day ago, of course, the Pope was given an interview in which he declared there's no such thing as hell. I don't know if any of you, if any of you read that or paid attention. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and here we... As one commentator said, well, if there's no such thing as hell, uh, well, what in the world did Jesus die for? You know, I mean, what's the point? Um, and apparently the Pope uh, indicated that um, you just disappear. Um, and it has, the, I'll be honest with you, it has even the Catholic Church in a tailspin because they don't know how to control the the, the uh, negative uh, responses that are coming and uh, but again it just shows the, the the exposes the Vatican really as, as for what it really is um, and um, so it's actually a good thing in one sense for us because it just simply validates what we have been saying all along um, and that uh, that it is the system uh, that the Holy Scriptures clearly indicates that it is and uh, so just wanted to bring that to your attention there. Now, before we begin, let us bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we again thank you for the opportunity we have to come together to study. Please bless us now and help us each one to remember your loving kindness. Come and take our hearts. Pour out your Holy Spirit unto us as you have promised in John fourteen twenty six, and John fourteen sixteen. You said you would give us a comforter and he would never leave us that he would teach us and guide us into all truth. Please help us, dear Lord, to remember the beautiful promises that you bestowed upon us, that you will do abundantly above all that we ask or think. It's wonderful to know, according to Isaiah 55, that your word will not come back to your void, but it will accomplish to the very thing in which you've sent it to do. And so, dear Lord, be it unto us according to your word. Help me to speak the words of life now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you brought your Bibles along. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13. We're going to look here at verse 1. Speaking of the papacy. And he says, I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. The, beach, the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were the feet of a bear, his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, seat, and great authority. I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast." Now, I want you to notice here, the Bible predicts a day is coming when all the world will come together and pay homage to the Antichrist. It doesn't say most, it says all. Nations of the world will submit. Now, <clears throat> obviously, if you continue reading on Revelation chapter 13 and spill over into chapter 14, we know there will be a little group of people known as the remnant who will not submit to the authority of Rome. And as I mentioned a little earlier before, uh, about the Sunday Sabbath issue, of course, being the pinnacle moment of which everyone will then decide whose side they're going to be on. 
Um, obviously, that time has not come, but I believe, and I think we all can agree, if looking at the signs of the times, dear friends, we are being propelled forward to that very moment. And you have to be really spiritually uh, out of touch. And I mean, I'm trying to be very kind here. You have to be spiritually out of touch, not to know where we are. And regardless, uh, you know, dear friends, when you look at things that are taking place in this world, politically, socially, religiously, economically, dear friends, we can't keep going on at the rate we're going. No nation in the history of mankind has committed what we are committed and survived. Empires have risen and become powerful in the history of mankind, ruling the then known world. But they too have decayed and fallen by the wayside. When you think of the ancient empires... Greece and, and, and the Medes and the Persians and the Egyptians and, and you think of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Romans. Unbelievable empires. And what's left of them? Egypt is relegated to a museum. Go see the pyramids. That's all you have. Italy. What's, what's Rome? You got pizza and you got pasta. That's it. You look at Greece and what's there? I mean, all they have is their, their philosophical concepts and ideas about, the, about humanity. And, and, of course, that has absorbed itself in, into the human race. I understand that. But fundamentally, what's left of the Grecian Empire? But it's a bunch of islands. And you go down them all. Babylon doesn't even exist. The Medes and the Persians, that, that's gone as well. I understand about Iran and Iraq, the locations of where these empires once stood. I realize that. But there's nothing there to see. There's nothing there left. And what will become of the United States of America? I'll tell you what, dear friends. There'll be nothing left because Jesus will come and end it all. And what we are witnessing today uh, in regard to the things that are taking place before us is the death of a nation. You're witnessing the end of the United States of America. People keep saying, oh, we've, we've got a, a, a new beginning with President Trump, and I'm not here to, I don't care what your political affiliation will, should be. Frankly, you shouldn't be either a Democrat nor a Republican, and if you are, shame on you! You ever heard of a man by the name of Benjamin Rush? He's one of our founding fathers, the chief physician of the Continental Army. He was the number one physician in the American Revolution. It was a born-again, God-fearing Christian. You can even read his writings. He wrote much on the Bible. Uh, he was an abolitionist. He was a, a, a man who truly loved the Lord. And you can honestly say about this man, not like other founding fathers, but this one was a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was unapologetic about it. So when George Washington was elected as president, you remember that he, of course, was what has became known at the time as a Federalist Party. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, John Adams, of course, would be president, second president. And remember, he and Thomas Jefferson had a little friction, and they parted ways, of course, Jefferson being vice president. 
And, of course, from that point forward, developed what we now have, a two-party system. Back then, it was the Federalists versus the Jeffersonians, or what he was called at the time, a Democratic-Republican, or better known also sometimes known as the Anti-Federalist concepts. So you have those two groups developing. And there caused enormous friction and tension within not only government, but in society. Whose side are you on? And, of course, one said, well, our side has all the answers. We'll solve the problems. And the other side said, no, you don't. We do. And there began the political chaos that we now presently possess. And uh, it was Benjamin Rush who said at that time, he said, I am neither a Democrat nor a Republican. He said, I'm a Christocrat. And I thought, ever since I read that, that a boy, now that's my kind of Christian. You see, dear friends, I belong to the Christian party, the Christocrat party. As Paul said in Corinthians, you some follow Cephas and some follow Apollos. He said, but others follow Jesus Christ. They're the only ones who were right, by the way. All the other ones, as good as Paul was and Apollos and Peter, they were all godly men, no doubt about it, but they're not our examples. Jesus is the one. So don't put your faith in political parties. Trump isn't going to save this country. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for him or or the political parties. The Bible says we should pray for them that we might live a peaceful, quiet life. Uh, But all the promises they're making are shallow. They cannot stop the hemorrhaging. We have gone too far. And, of course, Scripture makes it clear. All the world's going to wonder after the beast. And we know, according to Revelation chapter 13, the United States of America will be the power that will cause it. In other words, he will make it happen. And I just as a little footnote on this, what you're witnessing now in world events in regard to Korea, in regard to the Middle East, in regard to Russia, listen, they're lining up all the ducks in a row. You're watching Bible prophecy unfold. In other words, what you're witnessing is the world being brought together. You see, right now, nations are are, are antagonistic towards each other. And and to some degree, they always will be. But in Revelation chapter 17, the Bible says, These shall have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Now, it's very interesting in the Greek, the word one mind, what it means it refers to, they will come together as one with one purpose in mind. And the best example of that is, is uh, just to illustrate this, you take a, a team, a sports team, like in basketball, you have five fellas on the court and they play as a team. There's only one team, but you have five people. Listen, but they have one mind, one purpose in mind to win. You understand? And that's the concept that the Bible depicts at the end of time. There, you know, when we talk about the new world order, it's not one nation uh, ruling all other nations, whereby all other nations cease to exist. That's not what the scripture teaches. It teaches the nations will be nations, but they will unite themselves together with one purpose in mind and give their power and strength unto the beast. Revelation 13, all the world wonders after the beast. And we're headed in that direction. We're headed in that direction. Now, 
In Revelation chapter 16, if you turn there with me in your Bibles, Revelation 16, we pick up the same concept, and notice the language changes just slightly, but it's still talking about the same thing when all the world wanders after the beast, Revelation 16. Now, in Revelation 15, you have the close of probation. Revelation 16, the seven last plagues begin. You can, you can start to see it taking place. What's interesting, what's interesting here um, in, in Revelation uh, 16, uh, you can see here right in the middle of it, it's almost as if uh, your, your, your attention has been distracted, taken away. And there's a focal point that the prophet wants to take you to, and that begins here at verse 13. I want you to notice it says, I saw three unclean spirit-like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. It says, For they are spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world, now notice the language, to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Now, go down to verse 16. And he gathered them together into the, a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. So we stop right there. So here we find a very climactic description of, of a moment of time where, where you find the world is being gathered together. Now these three unclean spirits, notice who they go to first. They don't go to the people to first. doesn't say that. They go to the kings of the earth first you see dear friends why are these three unclean spirits going to the political leaders of the world first because they control the strings of society now i hate to break the news to you but you and i really fundamentally we don't run our government I know that Abraham Lincoln famous, you know, of the people, by the people, for the people. That is should be true. That should be true. But the reality is the very opposite of that. It's by corporate America, the elitists, for corporate America, the elitists, and of corporate America, the elitists. Do you understand? Amen. You and I are nothing more than, uh, it, well, at least to the established, in many ways, we're a nuisance. And we're a means to an end. We're not a benefit to society based on those who are ruling this world. We are simply here to do their bidding. Now you can vote people out of office and you vote new people in, but isn't it rather interesting whether it's Republican or Democrat, whether they're male or female, black or white, Jew, Gentile, doesn't mean go down the list. It just seems that fundamentally overall nothing ever changes. Except it just gets worse for you and me. Not for them. It just gets worse for us time and time again. Now, why is that? If we are, if it's our country, if it's our political system, and we're, it's, it's ours, why is everything getting so bad for us? Because that's an illusion. It doesn't belong to you. You may think it does, but it doesn't belong to you. The, the typical politician, there's always exceptions. You always have an exception to the rule. But the typical politician, dear friends, remember, he's already been bought and sold. And uh, he's not here to represent your interests. 
So they go to the kings of the earth first, which tells you fundamentally that the political systems of the world are morally bankrupt. To describe them as degenerate would be a compliment. They are under the control, according to Scripture, under the control of the influence of these three powers. Then, once they have them, then they go to the people. Why? Because the kings of the earth are going to cooperate with the three unclean spirits to bring about the gathering of the world together. And the kings of the earth are going to help the three unclean spirits to accomplish this through economic means, primarily. No man can buy or sell. Through political means, by stripping you of your freedoms and your rights. And by the way, just as a footnote on this, and I'm unapologetic about this, I'm a firm believer in the Second Amendment. And what you're witnessing now, you people say, well... You know, we, and I hear this from Christians, which is appalling to me personally. You know, well, we, we shouldn't have those types of weapons. Uh, look, I don't mean to, I'm just going to dovetail, just a little footnote on this. I don't, it's amazing to me how ignorant so many of us really are as a society now. Not just Christians, but as a society. We are of our rights and the origin of those rights. <clears throat> you hear people say, well, it's outdated, the Second Amendment. It's outdated, the Bill of Rights. I mean, you know, it's just, it's so old. Friends, the Bible is as old as you can get. And it's not outdated. If we were to follow that logic, then the Bible ought to be thrown in the trash heap. The Second Amendment, if you were to go back and study the Second Amendment, the origin, the development, the rise, how it came about, and why, why the founding fathers put it there, why? You wouldn't be opposed to the Second Amendment. I don't have time, but I would, uh, you know, friends, if you go back and study the history of the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, and the Declaration of Independence, they're all Protestant documents. Now, they don't gonna, they're not going to teach you that in your school system. But they are Protestant in their origin. And uh, we've got to understand that the political system isn't working in your favor. And according to Scripture, they're going to be used as a means by which Satan is going to accomplish his objective and bring you and I and the world to this climactic moment to decide whose side we're going to be on. And it's going to revolve around Sunday or Sabbath. And let me tell you this. It doesn't matter whether you're a Sabbath keeper or not at this particular point in time. Let me explain what I mean. Listen very carefully to me. Just because you're a Sabbath keeper today doesn't mean you'll be one tomorrow. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. 
The choices you make today determine the outcome of what will be tomorrow. You know, if you have a garden, anybody like a little garden? You know, I love gardening. I don't really have any place to garden, but I use pots. And you'd be amazed what you can grow out of just a little bin of a pot. It's amazing how much lettuce and other things you can grow. But if you are growing something, let's say you want to grow a tomato plant. You want to you want to grow a tomato plant, and you got you're going to do it from seed. And you say, well, uh, you grab a bunch of peas and you throw it in there into the pot, and you're waiting for the tomato plant to come up. Friends, I got news for you. There's going to be no tomato plant coming. Now, you may be as sincere as you want to be. You may be earnest, and, and you may tend to that pot and plant all you want. You can pray all day long. The sun could shine at the proper time. Rain could fall just when it is needed. The, the, the atmosphere could be per- perfect for you, but no tomatoes are coming. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You may be sincere as you want to be about being a Christian, about being a Seventh-day Adventist, about keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath. But it's the choices you make day to day that determine the nature of one's character. You're not a Christian because you come to church on the Sabbath day. You coming to church is, an, is, is a manifestation of what's happening inside of you. And a real Christian isn't one that is seen in public, but what is happening in private. Who you are when the shades are closed, when, when, when the windows are all boarded up, when, when the doors are, are, are confined, and you're all alone, that's the real you. And when all is well, peace and prosperity, and of course you're going to be happy. Of course you're going to smile. Yes, I'll be patient towards you. But when there's a crisis in your life, something happens, and that's when you, the real person comes out. And so the kings of the earth, dear friends, are going to be used as a means by which Satan is going to accomplish his objective. He's going to gather the world. He's going to gather the world to the battle of Armageddon. Now, Satan is going to use the three unclean spirits to gather the world to to, to the battle of Armageddon, which is the climactic moment. Now, I want to show you what God's going to do. I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. And as you're turning there, just want to remind you, who's the beast? The three unclean spirits. There's the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon. Who are they? The beast represents Roman Catholicism. Right, and by the way, just a footnote again, so we get some clarity here. When we're talking about the Antichrist, we're talking about the system, not the people, right? Very simple there. It's the system, no doubt about it. A man is at the head of it, no doubt about it. 
And so, so but that, that's what the, who the beast is. Then the, the dragon, who's the dragon represent? Well, primarily, there's no doubt, dear friends, when you look at the dragon game as power, seat, and great authority. From a historical standpoint, we know that was Rome. We understand that. In other words, the papacy usurped or, or took upon itself the seat of the old Roman holy empire. We get that. That's fine. But really, the power structure behind that, the one, is Satan himself. There's no doubt about that. Also, we know that the dragon, represented in this particular context of Revelation chapter 16, 13 through 16, represents spiritualism. Y'all with me? It represents spiritualism. Remember, it says the serpent of old. In the context, the dragon, the serpent of old, Revelation chapter 12, the serpent of old, meaning the old serpent. He's telling you to go back into the book of Genesis and find out the true meaning of who the serpent represents. And the serpent, the dragon there, in that case, represents uh, Satan. And remember what he said to Eve? You remember? You will not surely die. You won't surely die. Of course, which is the beginning of spiritualism. And that's, of course, where you get the dragon being spiritualism. And, of course, the false prophet in Revelation chapter 16 represents who? Now, think, it represents apostate Protestantism in America. It doesn't represent America. <coughs> Excuse me. It represents apostate Protestantism in America. So here's the threefold union. Catholicism, spiritualism, which encompasses all the pagan religions and philosophies of the world. And you have apostate Protestantism in America, uniting together, coming for one common purpose. And they go to the kings of the earth, in return, subjugating the people to the battle of Armageddon. All right? Now, let's continue on. Go to Isaiah chapter 11. Start Look here with verse, verse 11. By the way, you should read the whole chapter. It's a beautiful prophecy. But let's look here at verse 11. <clears throat> By the way, verse 10 is a messianic prophecy about Jesus. And it says, uh, which shall stand, the root of Jesse, the root of Jesse being the Messiah, which, who shall stand for an ensign. He shall stand for an ensign to the people. The Gentiles shall seek and his rest shall be glorious. You see, that's Matthew chapter 11, 28 to 30. Come unto me, all ye labor and heavy laden, I'll give you what? Rest. There you go. And so that's the glorious rest. He's talking about the coming of the Messiah. But now notice this. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. Now stop here. The Lord's going to do what? Stretch out his hand a second time. By the way, if you go to early writings, Sister White quotes this. And she refers to the gathering of God's people at the end of time. And so here we have a prophetic vision now. Looking down at the end of time, God's going to stretch out his hand a second time and he's going to gather his people. Remember, Satan is going to use the three unclean spirits. He's going to use the three unclean spirits and they're gathering the world together under their umbrella, right? What is God doing? You think he's just going to sit there, fold his hands and, you know, just kind of do nothing? No, he's actively engaged in the warfare for souls. He says, he shall set up uh, uh, um, and shall stretch out his hand a second time to recover the remnant of his people. Notice where, where they're at, which shall be left in Assyrian, Egypt, Epathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and the islands of the sea. So where are they? They're all over the world. 
He goes on actually to say that. Verse 12, he shall set up an ensign for the nation. Stop right there. Now that ensign is different than verse 10 because in verse 10, the ensign is Jesus. In verse 12, the ensign here is the Sabbath. Notice, notice the core message that God's going to use to gather the world together. The seventh day Sabbath. That's how he's going to know who his children really are. So he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel. Notice the outcasts of Israel, those who have backslidden. You know any backslidden Seventh-day Adventists? A lot of them are coming back. Psalm 147 says that we should praise God. Matter of fact, 147, 148, 149, and 50 says we should give God the glory. Because in Psalm 147, it says God will regather his people together. You and I better pray to God Almighty. We shall be among them. Don't assume that's what's going to happen to you. Never make an assumption to think, well, I'm okay because I go to church. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. That means nothing. There will be, unfortunately, many Seventh-day Adventists who will capitulate when the crisis comes. You see, today, right now, at this moment, I can fool you and you can fool me. But in the end, no one can fool God. What did Paul say? Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Don't think you're going to pull the wool over out God's eyes. God knows right now, right now, whether you are his child or not. You're like, like Joe Cruz used to say. Y'all remember? Anybody remember Joe Cruz? Anybody? God. What a, what a. He said, you know, if we were to all die at this moment, in other words, death came right now, instantaneously. He said, you're either saved or lost. It's as simple as that. And fundamentally, that's so true. Right now, you're either in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ or you're not. You, in other words, either you're a child of God or you are not. There's no middle ground. That's right. And so, he shall set up an ensign. He shall gather the outcasts of Israel, gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. He's going to gather his saints now, I want you to look at verse 13. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not, envy, uh, shall not vex Ephraim. Who's Ephraim? Ephraim, dear friends, you have to remember, you've got to understand, dear friends, Ephraim, dear friends, is representing the ten northern tribes. Judah represents who? The other two, Judah and Benjamin. And they were at times hostile towards each other. They were enemies. And yet the irony is they were brothers. They were brothers and sisters. They were Jews. Meaning they were God's people. And they were fighting against each other. He says when God stretches out his hand a second time. And to recover the remnant of his people. When he gathers them together. The animosity, the bitterness, the jealousy, the backbiting, the complaining, the whining that goes on in the Seventh-day Adventist church will stop. Among the true believers. We will come together unified. See, God can't go to battle with a disorganized, dysfunctional, hodgepodge of know-nothing people who, do, who absolutely can't take orders. Imagine going to war and you're the commanding officer and nobody in your troop will listen to you. 
I can see now why some generals, when they found somebody be a coward or would not obey orders, they would shoot them right there. Line them up and end it. And that sent a message to everybody. Get out of line, you're next. Now thank God doesn't God doesn't line us up and shoot us. Because <clears throat> I don't think any of us would be alive. But God is going to use tough love. Yes, friends, he uses love, but sometimes it's going to be tough. See, sometimes we need a good spiritual spanking. Sorry, dear friends, I'm sorry. Sometimes we need a good spiritual spanking to wake us up to the reality of the condition that we are in. See, this is the purpose of the Laodicean message, is to awaken us to the reality of the condition that we're in at the time in which we live. That's why some people will rise up against it because they find it going contrary to the nature of their desires. They want to live a life uh, that has some sin in it. They, they may not want all the sin, but they like some sin. But you can't have some sin and have Jesus at the same time. You know, imagine walking down the aisle, you're going to get married. Imagine, here's a young couple. They're going to get married, a man and, and a woman. And yes, you heard me right, a man and a woman. Going down the aisle, going down the aisle, and they're going to get married. And of course, you know, Bill and Sally, we'll just say their name. Bill, Bill looks over to Sally. Uh, you know, Sally, I love you. I know you do, Bill. I know you do. Oh, I, and, and they just keep walking, and he says again, you know, uh, you're the best thing that's ever happened to me. I, I, oh, I just love you so much. I know you do. I know you do. And she, he, finally they reach down to the right before the minister, and Bill says to Sally, you know, I love you so much. I'm going to be so committed to you. I'm going to commit to you 364 days of the year, but only one day to Lucy. That's how committed I am to you. Now, if Sally goes on and says, and says, well, thank you, and God bless you, and marries Bill, she deserves him. You understand? If she had any brains in her head, she would then at that moment say, Sonny boy, I got news for you. This ain't going to happen. Now, we would not tolerate infidelity. We would not. And we're evil by nature. And we wouldn't tolerate it. Yet when it comes to our relationship with God, we expect him. We absolutely, almost arrogantly assume that that's what he should be doing. He should tolerate as many of my lover's sins as he can. And still give me heaven. No, he's not. He's not going to tolerate even one lover outside of him. It's not going to happen. See, that's the process of sanctification. That's the whole purpose of the early reign. Early reign is to get your life right with the almighty God. Latter reign is to perfect you, not character-wise, because you've already been perfected under the early reign, but is to perfect you for what is to come. And many, sadly, don't realize this. And so there'll be no more fighting among God's people. Look what it says in verse 14. And they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines. Stop right there. Notice, they, they're united now. 
They are united now. Now, notice the language. This is prophetic now. Fly upon the shoulders of the Philistine. Now, in Bible prophecy, a shoulder represents strength and power. For example, if you're going to pull something, if you're going to pull something, you don't pull it with your arms. You, you strap that rope across your shoulder and you throw your shoulder into it. And so in Bible prophecy, a shoulder represents strength and power. Now, what does he mean? He says, and they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines. They shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines. Meaning prior to this, prior to this, the Philistines were conquering God's people. In other words, they were the winners. God's people were the losers. But the tide has turned. The tables have been turned around now. Now, who's conquering who? God's people shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines, meaning they are going to conquer their enemies. Not by physical confrontation, but by the proclamation of the three angels' message. The tide has turned. No longer will we be among the defeated. No longer will we be oppressed in that regard. We will be going forward triumphantly, gloriously proclaiming the three angels' message. It goes on to say, now watch this, and they shall spoil them of the east together. Spoil them, meaning they, God's people, will take the spoils from the Philistines. We're going to take them or their wealth away from them. And again, it's not a physical wealth. It's not what he's talking about spiritually. How, in what way will we spoil them? Look what he goes on to say. They, meaning God's people, shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. Now, who's Edom, who's Moab, and who's Ammon? Edom are the direct descendants of Esau, the brother of of Jacob. Y'all with me? Right? You understand? Yeah. Well, who's Moab and 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 uh, and uh, Ammon? They're the children of Lot, the nephews of Abraham. They are distant relatives to God's people. Now, what's he talking about? When God stretches forth his hand a second time to recover the remnant of his people, they, God's people, will no longer bicker and fight amongst themselves. Now they'll unite themselves in Christ as one, go forth under the unction of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the three angels' message. They shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines. The tables are turned now. It's in their favor. The outpouring of the Spirit has come. And they will go forth and eat of Moab and the children of Ammon, God's people out in the world who have yet to hear the three angels' message and embrace the seventh-day Sabbath, will obey them. These are God's people coming out of Babylon. God is going to gather his people as Satan is gathering his. What you are witnessing, what's happening today, dear friends, two sides are being developed. Now, as I go back to what I said before, the choices you're making today determine the outcome of whose side you'll be on. You think, well, it doesn't really matter. These are minor issues in regard to certain things that I do. Maybe th- things I watch, things I see uh, or hear or, or what I read, where I go, who I associate with, what I eat, what I don't eat, etc. We go down the litmus a test. You can go down every one. But in the final analysis, dear friends, all it took was a look for Lot's wife to be turned into a pillar of salt. A look. 
And not only was she lost in this world, but she'll be lost in the world to come. And God means exactly what he says. If God could not tolerate sin in the most beautiful, majestic being he had ever created, Lucifer, who stood at his right side, there was the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And I hope we've got believers in, in the, in the yes. Godhead here. Please, please don't make me come back and have to preach a sermon on that one. But you know, let me tell you, dear friends, you know, think of this now. Just think for a moment. Here's, here's the Godhead. God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, all in one. And, and right next to them, right next to is Lucifer. And he sins, and God says, you know, I'm going to give you a chance to repent. I'll give you a chance to repent, make things right. But, if, but, but when Lucifer said no, God would not tolerate it even in him, who was the next to the Godhead. What makes you think he's going to tolerate it in you? When we're so far down the ladder, it's not even funny. You see, I think a lot of people, the problem is, with Christianity or those within Christianity, at least some within Christianity, is that they presume upon God's goodness. And they believe they can be saved their way by modifying God's way. But you can't go to heaven your way. You got to go to heaven God's way. And if it afflicts and rubs against your natural grain, your pride, your selfishness, etc., then you've got one of two choices. You either surrender and submit to the sovereignty of the will of God, or you resist. And right now, everybody is making up their minds. Now, I don't I can't read your heart and you can't read mine. I don't know what's going on inside of you. But if you're honest with yourself, if you're really, truly honest with yourself, you know exactly where you stand. And uh, that's why Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Examine. Contemplate. Meditate. It's good to take some time in your life every day to contemplate who are you in Christ. Who are you? Are you really doing what God requires? Are you really obeying him? Are you following what he says? Go to Joel. I want to show you something here. Joel chapter 2. Look at verses 1 and 2. Joel 2, 1 and 2. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord comes for it is nigh at hand. The day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and a thickness and darkness as the morning spreads upon the mountains, a great people and a strong. There shall not be seen, excuse me, there shall not, there hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even in the years of many generations. So what you're seeing is God again through the prophet Joel repeating the same thing we just read out of Isaiah, gathering the people. And, there, and when he does, he says this gathering will be such 
of a magnitude, the likes of which that's never been seen in the history of mankind. It'll be so glorious. It'll be so majestic. It'll be so incredible. And God, tell you what, dear friends, I pray to God, we shall be among that, among them who will be uh, among the redeemed. Go to verse 15. He picks it up from here again. Look at verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Notice, gather the people. And again, this is not a physical gathering. This is a spiritual gathering. Prepare yourself. That's what he's saying. Get ready. Jesus is coming. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and those that suck of the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep between the porch and the altar and say, Spare thy people, O Lord, for, and give not thine heritage to the repro- to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is your God? In other words, don't let us be an embarrassment to you, Lord, and allow the heathen to say, where is your God? Look look what kind of people you are. And I'm, I'm not saying that there aren't today. There are people out in the world who look at us as the Seventh-day Adventist people. And in some cases, they look at us and say, I don't see God. I don't see God because you, you don't demonstrate it. I just don't see Jesus. <clears throat> and now again, there are always going to be those... Enoch's living in this our day, who are godly, who love the Lord, who exemplify the virtues of Christianity. But sadly to say, dear friends, I'm sorry to tell you that in many cases, throughout the world, in the churches, there are those who simply are not following God's will. And they don't exemplify the virtues of Christ to people. Remember, Paul says we're letters to be read. And what kind of letter are you sending to those around you? And so we see the gathering. Finally, I'm going to go to closing here in Zephaniah. Go to Zephaniah chapter 2. Zephaniah chapter 2. And by the way, just a little footnote on this. In Zephaniah chapter 2, I would recommend you read the whole whole book. There's only three chapters. But this is one of the greatest books you can read about end time events. Zephaniah chapter 2. Zephaniah chapter 2. Look in here, verse 1. We'll read all the way to verse 3. Zephaniah chapter 2. Verse 1, gather yourselves together, yea, gather together, O nation not desired. Now please notice again, he's talking about gathering the people. Same thing Joel said, same thing Isaiah said. Now please pay attention. I want you to notice what he says in the next verse. So here's an appeal to gather, to get ready, to prepare yourself. Look at the first word of the next verse, before. Before the decree bring forth, before the day pass as the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. Now, four times, four times he says, you better do something before X, Y, and Z take place. Four times. That's an urgent appeal. Right? You know... If I tell you we're driving down the road and I happen to look over at your in your gas tank or the, the the gas monitor there and I says you know what the fuel t- it says it's on E or riding close and I say to you you got to get gas 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 I would hope and think the good Lord Jesus you get the message and pull over and get some gas. 
He's telling you four times, four times, do something. Because he's saying this is urgent. This is important. We need to gather before something happens. Implying what? That when this happens, you won't be able to gather. So what's the decree that he's referring to here in verse 2? Before the decree goes forth. What's the decree? Because whatever decree it is, once it's issued... You can't prepare. It's too late. So what's the decree? It's the close of human probation. When probation closes, you won't be able to prepare for heaven. It's too late. The angel of mercy takes her flight never more to return. Jesus' mediatorial work in the heavenly sanctuary in the most holy place ceases. He takes off his priestly garments and puts on what? The garments of vengeance. He comes back as Lord of lords and kings of kings. Not as a savior. He already came back for that. He's now coming back for vengeance. For he says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. That's when he comes back with a rod of iron. He didn't come back with a rod of iron the first time. He comes back with a rod of iron the second time to punish the iniquitous nations of the earth and to gather his people, bring them back home with him. And therefore, a thousand years we will live with Jesus in the new city, Jerusalem, and there we will then begin what is known as the executive judgment. We will look over the books of heaven. And look over the records and see what's going on. And remember, friends, the records that God keeps, the books that he keeps, the scrolls that he keeps, they're not for him. He knows the end from the beginning. They're for us. They're for the unfallen world. We don't know the end from the beginning. Listen, I hope we all get to heaven, and I hope every family member that represented here gets to heaven. But sadly to say, in many cases, that's not going to happen. And I don't know about you, but if we get to heaven, and again, I pray to the good Lord Jesus as we persevere in Christ, we shall. But I know I'm going to have questions. Where's, where's so-and-so? Well, why didn't my, 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 my friend or this person, why didn't they make it? I'm going to have a million questions. God, why did you let this happen to me? I mean, why did I have to climb that hill, that, that steep mountain in my Christian walk? Why? And you know what God's going to do? He's going to sit us down and look at this. And she says, what's very interesting, during this, when Jesus comes down out of the city of New Jerusalem the third time, right? He comes down at the end of the millennium and reveals to the wicked. Remember, they don't know why they're lost, do they? They're going to be given the executive judgment. And what's interesting, what's interesting, Sister White says, in panoramic view, their lives will pass before them. From the time they were born to the time they die, they will see every sin, every motive exposed for what it is. And that's when Peter says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, even Satan himself, all the fallen angels, all the wicked will bow down and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is just holy and good and that he made the right decision, that they don't deserve to be in heaven. And then instantly Satan will rise up and instigate another rebellion. 
and convince them they can take the new city, Jerusalem. If only we could take it, boys, because there's the tree of life. And we grab that fruit, we'll live forever. And that's when Sister White says that the wicked will devise implements of war that have never been devised in the history of mankind. They will marshal themselves in organized units of military warfare. And then as they are about to rush upon the city, fire comes down out of heaven and consumes them. And leaves neither root nor branch. And Nahum 1 9 says it will consume until there's nothing left but the ashes, and sin shall not arise a second time. And from that point forward, we will then witness from the city walls a recreation, a new heavens and a new earth. We will watch God recreate the earth. Can you imagine? Out of nothing comes something. Let there be this. Boom it. We'll watch the stars burst, burst across the universe. Let, let there be let there be the animals. And out of nowhere here come a flock of birds, the likes of which you've never seen. Animals of every kind. Plants, flowers, fragrance. Uh, a flower, I'm, t- I'm not talking about dull, ugly plants. Ugly looking birds. I'm talking beautiful, the likes of which man has never beheld. And then we're told, remember, <clears throat> prior to the flood, God took the Garden of Eden to heaven. The original Garden of Eden to heaven. And he'll put that back down right where it should be. And when God is finished, that's what Matthew 7 says, and the meek then shall inherit the earth. And then begins an eternity For the saints. Now think about this dear friends. A hundred thousand billion trillion years go by. And you've just begun life. Another hundred billion trillion years go by. And you've just begun life. Another hundred billion trillion years go by. And you've just begun life. Another hundred billion trillion years go by. And you've just begun life. And you will never be bored or lonely. Which is inconceivable. Incomprehensible. We will be able to travel to other worlds. And we will be on the spotlight of the stage of the universe. Because there the unfallen world, the inhabitants will come to us and What was it like? What was it like being redeemed? Now, we won't, thank God, remember our past sins, but we will know we have been bought by the blood of Jesus. And we will tell them of the redemption story. You know, Sister White describes the great supper that will take place in heaven, the silver table, as far as the eye can see. She says at that time... And you can see, I need glasses just to read. She says, at that time, we will have telescopic and microscopic vision. Now, I don't think we understand what that means. Telescopic, microscopic vision. Forget the Hubble. Our eyes, compared to the Hubble, will make the Hubble look like a blind man. That's how powerful our vision will be. Telescopic distance. Telescopic. Now think about this. I'm sitting on the one end of the table. Right? 
I'm on the one end of the table. You're miles down, and I'm going to see you. And I say, well, good to see you, Sally. God bless you, darling. How you doing? And you, because you have telescopic vision, you can see me, and you can talk to me miles apart. Microscopic vision? We will look at plants, flowers, trees in a very different way than we've ever had before. We'll we'll be able to break down the minutiae of the atom just by looking. Microscopic vision. Oh, dear friends, there is a heaven to win and a hell to shun. But I'm so sorry to say so many of us, we're not like Joseph with Potiphar's wife, you know, running from sin. We're we're, we're crawling, hoping sin will catch us. That's not a Christian life. We've got to realize Jesus is coming, dear friends. Jesus is coming. And God says we need to gather ourselves before the close of probation. We've got to get ready now, dear friends. Now, while it is day, we should work. The night comes when no man will be able to work. And so in the final analysis, you've got to ask yourself some fundamental questions. Where do you stand in your relationship with God? You remember when Adam and Eve fell. And they heard God coming in the cool of the eve. They quickly ran and hid themselves, right? They hid themselves behind these bushes. And God walked up to the very bush they were hiding behind and said, Where art thou? Now think of it very carefully. Listen to that question. Where art thou? That was not about location. That wasn't asking, where, where are you hiding? Where are you hiding? He wasn't asking where they were hiding. You mean to tell me he accidentally just stumbled across the very bush they were hiding behind? It has nothing to do with location. He wasn't asking where they were hiding. He was saying, where are you in relationship to me? Where are you, Adam and Eve? Why did they hide? They were ashamed of their nakedness. They knew what they did was wrong. When they heard God coming, they hid themselves. And that's what every sinner does when Jesus comes. They hide They hide. They try to avoid the reality. Listen to me. Let me tell you something. The Bible is a book of reality. It is the only book that deals with reality. It doesn't lie. It doesn't askew. It doesn't mislead. It tells you exactly the way things are. It doesn't ask your permission. It's not seeking a consensus. It doesn't say, what do you think? It simply says, this is what God says. This is the truth. And he doesn't care whether you like it or not. The Bible is not only a book of reality. It's the most politically incorrect book in the history of mankind. So you can't be politically correct and be a Christian. Sorry, dear friends. They're diametrically opposed to each other. It's counterintuitive. You can't sit there and say, I'm politically correct, but I embrace the Bible. Well, you're embracing a Bible that's completely unacceptable to social standards today. You stand up for biblical marriage, there's something wrong with you. You're a racist bigot, a hate-filled monger. That's what you are. That's what society says today. 
Now, we shouldn't be in any way uh, uh, behaving in an inappropriate manner when we're representing Jesus Christ. We should always exemplify the virtues of God at all times. But that doesn't mean when we say we exemplify the virtues of Christ, you're a moral coward. Moral cowardness and the virtues of God do not go together. God, when Jesus came to this earth, he, he had moral strength to tell people the truth even if they didn't like it. And what you and I have to learn is to cultivate the habit of telling the truth without being rude about it. Not always easy, but you've got to be able to have the moral courage to stand up and say, this is what God says. And be unapologetic about it. Now again, it's not in a rude, obnoxious, belligerent way. But you've got to stand up for what's right. Who will be the salt of this earth unless we are the ones representing God? When salt loses its flavor or savor, in other words, its, its, its vitality, it can no longer preserve what it's trying to save. And one of the reasons the world is in the condition it's in is because the church has lost its saving power. We're no longer the salt of the earth, at least to the extent we should be. That's why we see humanity decaying before our very eyes. Oh, friends, listen, I could go on and on and on, but we've got to remember, dear friends. Now, listen, just as Satan is using the three unclean spirits to gather the world together. So God, he too will gather the world together. But he's not going to use three unclean spirits. He's going to use three angels. Revelation 14, 6 to 12. Accompanied by a fourth angel, Revelation 18, 1 to 4. So God's going to up the ante on Lucifer and bring in a fourth angel. And dear friends, we've got to remember... The preaching of the three angels' message is the very heart and soul of Seventh-day Adventism. We can never capitulate that message. But listen to me. If we want to keep standards in the church, if we want to maintain the integrity of God's word in the church, then you've got to do it in your own life first. It starts with you. And so I want to leave you with this. I want to leave you with the question that God asked Adam and Eve. Friends, where are you today? Where are you? And I hope and pray to God we'll be able to answer that question that the Lord will then respond to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. May God bless all of you and may the Lord be with you. Don't forget this afternoon we got another message. Please come on back, stick around. I mean, where are you going anyway unless you got a Bible study? Or unless you've got uh, visitations, God, then go. If all the church were to leave, do visitate. God bless you. I'll be here preaching to myself. I don't care. But it's better to do the work of God. Amen? But listen, but if you're not doing anything other than going home and sitting around, why don't you stick around? May God bless you and the Lord be with you is my prayer. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for the blessed opportunity we have to come together to study, to meditate, to contemplate the word of the Lord. Help each one of us to remember what a loving friend we have. That you will never leave us nor forsake us. That you'll do abundantly above all that we ask or think. Thank you, dear Lord. Now bless us all. Keep us in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.